Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your graces that we've already experienced. Thank you for um, the joy that it is to have the privilege to study your word together. Lord, it's not lost on us that you have given us a fine and able teacher. And for him, we pray this moment. I pray that uh, you would refresh David even as he opens up your living word and teaches to us. And I pray that you would bless him even with new insights because your word is inexhaustible and we will never uh, plumb all the depths that there is just even in the book of Romans. Open our hearts and our minds. Now we give you this study and pray that you would maximize its impact on our lives individually and as a church family. Have your way. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Diana. Good morning, everybody. Let's uh, stand and lift our hearts to God, shall we? And uh, Diana's led us in prayer. Let's uh, lift the song of thanks to God. Good theology always overflows in doxology in worship. And so uh, let's sing a doxology, shall we? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Bless the Lord. Great. Let's be seated together. Uh, Romans. Woohoo! Back. Missed you guys. Missed hanging out with Paul with you guys. So, uh, if you've got your study guide, look at that. It's fatter. And it's a big fat study guide because you're dealing with, uh, in the first semester, uh, three of the most dense and complex chapters in Romans that there are. Romans 9, 10, and 11. That's what we're going to be uh, tackling here this semester. Uh, in fact, um, you can turn over in the Bible of Romans. I know that's a shocker. But um, go ahead and turn there if you've got a Bible with you. And But what we want to do here, because we've been away from Romans for a little while, is, is we've got to stretch. Uh, we've got to get our muscles limbered up a little bit, got to get our heads kind of back around the material that we've been dealing with and kind of get up to where the jumping off point is at the start of chapter 9. So we just want to do a little bit of a, this morning, something of a review before we dive into the deep end of Romans chapter 9. We'll, we'll do a little bit of an overview of, the, of in fact, the whole, uh, not just this semester, but all that we're going to be looking at this year, because we're going to do Romans 9 through 16 by the, by the time everything wraps up uh, next spring. So if you look right at the outset of the study, this is on page 5 of your study guide, just a reminder, what's the goal? Well, the goal is not to exhaust the text or ourselves, <laughs> but to open it up, to open up this inspired text and be instructed and inspired by its truth, to get the tools, gain the tools. I want you guys to get some tools in your own tool chest so that you can go on reading Romans. You can go on exploring it. You can go on studying to pursue its depths and in so doing love and cherish Jesus 
more deeply and truly, engage in his mission more radically, and rest in the gospel more completely. Those are the objects. It's not just to become uh, really super cerebral Christians who go, yeah, I know all the answers to Romans' trivial pursuit. That's not the objective at all. The objective is a deeper love for Jesus, a deeper rest in the promises of God given to us in him as he's offered to us in the gospel. And a, and, and a, 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 a heartfelt pursuit of God, making knowing him and praising him and loving him our life's passion. Because that's what's coming through in Romans. It's not just an intellectual exercise. So while we're doing some lecture-like work, there, there should be an anticipation as we dig into the text that because the Holy Spirit inspired the text and because the Holy Spirit makes Jesus present among us, there should be something going on not only in our heads but in our hearts that warms us so that we feel what John Wesley felt in Aldersgate Street, you know, just a a few hundred years ago when he stood there with a cold heart and he heard the introduction to Luther's commentary on the Romans being read. Not Romans even, not even the commentary on Romans, but the introduction to Luther's commentary on Romans. And he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed and I knew that I trusted Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. Romans has over the years changed lives. Over and over again, as people have encountered the gospel as it's presented here in Romans, the truth of God as it's presented in Romans, it has transformed hearts from most famously perhaps Augustine when he picked it up because he heard the little child song, Tole Lege, Tole Lege, take up and read, take up and read. And he picked it up and he fell open to Romans and his heart was converted. Or Luther, as he's studying Romans chapter 1. Calvin talks about how great this epistle is as well. William Tyndale, it's here in your study guide. This epistle is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament and most pure evangel. That is to say, the glad tidings of what we call the gospel. Also a light and a way into the whole scripture, the sum and the whole cause of the writings of this epistle is to prove that a man is justified by faith only. Which proposition whoso denieth, to him it is not only, is not only this epistle and all that Paul writeth, but also the whole scripture, so locked up that he shall never understand it to his soul's health. So in other words, for Tyndale, who was the great translator of the Bible into English, who was persecuted by Thomas More and finally martyred, for that work of translating the Bible into English. Because of Tyndale, you have the Bible in your language that's right in front of you right now because of that man. And he was martyred uh, as an exile in Belgium. They strangled him, and then they burned his body at the stake, and then they, they, they took the bones and they crushed the bones into a powder, and then they made the powder into a concrete mix, and they made that into paving stones on which horses would pass over and defecate. That's how opposed they were to you having that Bible sitting in front of you, all right? He, there was a greater reward on William Tyndale's head than in, in modern equivalents than there was for Osama bin Laden. Nobody wanted you reading the Bible. Nobody wanted you to have Romans. That's why I'm glad you're here. Because you've got it. You've got it in Romans. You've got it right here in your language. And people paid a price so you could do this. And Tyndale, who paid that price, said, you get this book and the whole Bible opens up to you. So this is a valuable 
valuable study for us, isn't it? So lives have been changed. A friend of mine in Austin, Wei San Wei, Chinese Buddhist from Singapore, was studying at the University of Austin, and uh, he saw a gal he really thought he wanted to take out, but she was a believer, and so she said, no, leave me alone. And uh, he found out that she was a Christian, and so he thought, well, if he became a Christian, maybe she'd be interested. And... uh, He had to learn more about what this Christian thing was. A couple of days before that, some Mormon missionaries had, Mormon missionaries had left a New Testament with him. He opened up, didn't know where to look, started reading Romans chapter 1, got to the section on idolatry and was stricken about his sin. Fell on his face, read as far as Romans 3 about Jesus being the penalty for his sins and was converted on the spot. That was it. Uh, They're married have six kids, <laughs> went to Covenant Theological Seminary. He's got an MDiv. That, that's the kind, Romans does this all the time. What will Romans do to you this year? That's the question. Now, I've got a suggestion for you. I think it'll make you mad. I think if you get into Romans 9, parts of it will probably distress you. Parts of it will probably upset you. And that's okay. That's okay because the Bible should challenge us. And so we have to be ready for the challenge of the truth as well. Of course, Romans has had this kind of impact because it's centered on the radical message of Paul, especially shown in Romans 1, 16 and 17, and in chapter 3, verses 31 and 30, and in chapter 4, verse 5, on the fact that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ Because Jesus' blood shed on the cross is the ground of our forgiveness. We are not justified because of our faith. We are justified through faith in his shed blood, which was offered for us on the cross. And this justification for Paul, remember, is not just about your sins being forgiven, but about a status being bestowed upon you, the status of being the sons and daughters of God. Righteousness, justification, I write in this paragraph here, is more than forgiveness. Forgiveness says you may go. Righteousness, justification says you may come. You could add to it, you can stay. You're a son, you're a daughter. It is not just that our sins and their guilt and their shame have been wiped away. But the perfect righteousness of Jesus has been counted to us as our own so that our status before God is as the sons and daughters of the living God. And this is not something we have earned. It is not something we deserve. It has been freely and graciously bestowed upon us. Richard Hooker great Anglican theologian from the Reformation era wrote, it's one of my favorite quotes, the righteousness wherein we must be found if we will be justified is not our own. Christ hath merited righteousness for as many as are found in him. I must take heed what I say. But the apostle saith, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Such we are in the sight of God the Father, as is the very Son of God himself. Let it be counted folly or frenzy or fury or whatsoever. It is our wisdom and our comfort. We care for no other knowledge in this world but this, that man hath sinned and God hath suffered. 
that God hath made himself the sin of men, that men are made the righteousness of God. It's a beautiful summary of everything that's going on here in this first section of Romans. So let's get caught up. Let's get caught up. Let's get to Romans chapter 9. Let's go right back to the beginning, kind of make a quick journey through. What do we have? What do we have with Paul and the Romans and the gospel? Well, first of all, of course, the book of Romans begins with that introduction by Paul. Ancient letters, you'll remember, were signed not just at the end, but at the beginning. And so we have a a signature right at the beginning. It's from Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle. Who is he? Well, he's Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus was second to Athens only as the intellectual capital of the ancient Near Eastern world. If you'll remember, and I don't have time to go into all the details today, if you sort of want to get deeper into all of this, you go back to those first couple of lectures that we did. But remember, Saul had basically the equivalence of two PhDs by the time he's about 21. So this is a person who's been raised in a heavily academic and religious atmosphere. He's a Roman citizen. Tarsus is in the southern, uh, a southern portion of Turkey. It's a Roman city. He's raised as a Roman citizen, but he's Jewish. And he shows academic ability and prowess. And so he is sent to Jerusalem to sit at the feet of the greatest theologian of his day, Gamaliel. And there he is trained in rabbinic theology and in Scripture. He is a Pharisee from the tribe of Benjamin. Pharisee just means a person who is set apart. And when you and I think of the word Pharisee, that word has very negative connotations for us because of the way in which we hear it and see it in the Gospels for people who have a righteousness of their own and because of this righteousness that they believe they possess by their own works and then look down on others or who give the appearance of having righteousness but secretly with their life deny it. That term Pharisee has that negative connotation But Paul was zealous, more zealous, he says, than anybody else he knew about these traditions. He kept them. He persecuted the church. And interestingly, it says here in this verse, in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, that he was a bond slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart. It's the very same word, Phariseed. He's Phariseed for the gospel. So he is a Pharisee bond slave. Pharisee just means somebody who is separate from, set apart. So Paul, the person who was the self-righteous, hypocritical Pharisee, is now, because of grace, the Pharisee of Jesus, the one who is set apart for him and for his mission and purpose. He's writing to the Romans, the believers at Rome. Why is he doing that? Well, he hopes to visit there. He is writing to let them know it was his intention to come and do ministry among them. The church has been established in Rome. But he is delayed. Why is he delayed? Well, if you turn over to Romans chapter 15 for just a moment, let's come over there. Romans chapter 15, verse 22, Romans 15, 22. He says, for this reason, I have often been hindered from coming to you. Why? Well, in the previous paragraph, he talks about his desire to go and preach where Jesus has not yet been named. He wants to go to Spain, in fact. And he says, I want to fully preach the gospel. 
so that those who've had no news of him shall see and those who have not heard shall understand. And so he says down here in verse 23, Now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a little while, now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia had been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. What's he talking about? He's talking about he's talking about an offering that these churches, these Christian communities had taken up, these Gentile churches, for the people of Jerusalem. You can read about that offering in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And Paul is in receipt of those monies, and he's going to carry them to Jerusalem for that work. And what he says is, as soon as I get to Jerusalem and I've delivered the, that, that offering that's been collected... Then I'm going to come back to Rome and I'm going to spend some time with you on my way to Spain, which was, in their world, the furthest place possible you could go. As far as anybody knew, there was no place beyond the coast of Spain. That was the ends of the world. That was as far as you could go. And so he says, that's where I'm going to go next. And I need your help to get there. So what is Paul doing? Paul's writing them saying, I'm coming. That's number one. Here's why I've been delayed. I got to get to Jerusalem. Uh, number three, number three. When I get there, I'm going to have you take an offering for me. So this is a fundraising letter. A lot of people aren't. Are, they're not really. They didn't know that about Romans. That's what he means by he says, "I'm on my way to Spain, and I'd like you to help me get there." That's a pastoral euphemism for take an offering. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there will be an offering. That's right. Okay, so what he's saying is I'm going to need your help to get on my way to Spain. And I want to stay with you. And I want to, I love this. He says, I want to enjoy your company for a while. He doesn't say, I just want to preach to you. He says, let's hang together. Let's be in relationship together. Let's sit around the fire. Let's have some conversations. So I'm going to get there and I'm going to get there on my way to Spain. So he gets to Jerusalem and he does eventually get back to Rome, but it's not the way he thought he was going to get there. The way he got there was when he got to Jerusalem, a riot broke out. And Paul found himself arrested. And then, courtesy of the Roman, uh, Roman authorities, he got an all-expenses-paid trip to Rome over the course of a few years that eventually got him there because he was in chains and because he had appealed to Caesar about the ruling on his life. So eventually he gets to Rome. Not the way he thought he was going to get there. Not in the time he thought he was going to get there. But there's another reason he's writing Romans. It's a letter of introduction, but Paul, being an apostle, has deep pastoral concerns. And here's what's going on. And this is absolutely crucial to understand about the whole purpose and meaning of the letter. And it is absolutely crucial to get if we are going to unpack Romans 9 through 11. Paul's writing around 55, the year 55 or so, when he's writing from Corinth. And he's writing to these Christians in Rome, and something very particular has happened. And it is central to Paul's message about the implications of the gospel, what the gospel means. Remember that the gospel message about Jesus begins in Jerusalem. And it concerns the Messiah of Israel. And all the first Christians and all the first apostles are Jewish. Paul is Jewish, even though he's a Roman citizen, and he speaks Hebrew, and he speaks Greek, and he speaks Aramaic. 
he's Jewish. He's a former Pharisee. And they didn't perceive of Christianity, what you and I call Christianity, as a different religion. They saw it as the fulfillment of the hope of Israel. Not a new religion, but the fulfillment of the hope of the fathers. Now, because they saw it as the fulfillment of the hope of the fathers, that the Messiah had come in Jesus, that meant that now the Gentiles were coming into the kingdom. But what do you know about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles for all those years? Well, there was deep antipathy. The Gentiles did not like the Jews. They did not like their customs. They did not like their practices. They did not like their separatism. The Jews, for their part, wanted no part to do with the immoralities of what they considered to be this evil, dark Gentile world. They wanted to be separate from them. Secondly, they lived in fear of them because this non-Jewish Gentile world, whether in the form of Babylonians or um, uh, Medo-Persians or Greeks or Romans had now for hundreds of years brutally suppressed and oppressed them, violently shutting down the temple under the Babylonians, burning it to the ground. Under Antiochus Epiphanes, Uh, 150 years before Jesus, desecrating the temple by sacrificing pigs on the altar, forbidding forbidding the uh, teaching of the Hebrew language and forbidding circumcision and so on. Um, A great revolt against that erupted, led by Judas Maccabeus, the hammer of God. That's what Maccabeus means. And you can read about that in the book of Maccabees in what is uh, commonly referred to as the Apocrypha and the overthrow of the Greeks. But after the Greeks came the Romans. So the Romans were there in Jerusalem at the time and they were the de facto guardians and rulers of the world. And Rome was its capital. And this deep antipathy to Rome and the Romans and fear of their violent oppression was something that animated deeply the Jewish people. Paul, being Jewish, though also a Roman citizen, was keenly aware of that that titanic struggle that was going on inside their soul. Then came this message about Jesus, who Paul regarded as a false messiah, and so did many of his contemporaries. And this was doing nothing, as you'll see that Caiaphas and Annas also felt in John chapter 11, this Jesus person was inciting such a following that it was going to cause the Romans to come in on him again and shut down the temple and execute thousands of people like they'd already done. They didn't want to see that happen, and that's why Caiaphas said it'd be better for one man to die, Jesus, than for the whole population to die. And that's what Paul thought too, until Jesus appeared to him. But now Jesus had appeared to him and he knew who he was. He was the Messiah. To his shock and astonishment, Jesus is the Messiah who had fulfilled all these prophecies and promises that had made to Abraham and via Isaiah about the one who would save Israel and be the light of the world and to whom the Gentiles would resort finally in the end. So the Gentiles are coming in. So when the Gentiles come in, does that mean that they become Jews? Because they're certainly becoming part of Israel. So does that mean that they then take up the temple sacrifices? Does that mean that they practice circumcision? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in the first century if you're a Gentile who grew up in Rome and you now believe in the Jewish Messiah? What does that mean? What does that look like? And Paul and the early apostles had to work out the implication of that to make matters a little crazier. This conflict 
This violent conflict that was between, really, Jewish people over who's the Messiah erupted in Rome. The Roman historian Suetonius tells us that riots broke out in Rome in around 47 A.D. over a figure the Jews called Christus. And to end the riots, Claudius, not being particularly discerning about which party of Jews were involved in what, simply said, all the Jews have got to go. He kicked every Jew out of Rome. That's it. Get out. Every one of you. I'm tired of your wrangling and your fighting. Just get out. So all the Jews left Rome. Now, the church has already been established there, but it's been made up of Jews and Gentiles. But if all the Jews are gone, what's that leave? Only Gentile believers. But Roman emperor decrees are only as good as long as the emperor lives. The emperor died. That's it. So when Claudius died, all the Jews started coming back, including Jewish believers, like Aquila and Priscilla, who you read about in Acts 18. They were Jewish believers in Jesus, living in Corinth, who were tent makers. And Paul, because he too was a tent maker, stayed with them. And that's how the church in Corinth got started. And then Priscilla and Aquila went back to Rome. Paul mentions them later in this, this letter. So the Jews go back. But the Gentiles have been running the church just fine, thank you very much, for some years now. And now all of you are coming back? I'm not sure, again, given the predispositions to disagreement and hatred that existed among Gentiles and Jews, I'm not sure we can really do this together. After all, after all, what do we really have in common? Maybe we should be separate. Maybe we're superior, thought the Roman Christians. Maybe we're superior, said the Jewish Christians. And Paul had to say, hang on a second. You are all desperately in need of a Savior. And you are all graciously given the same Savior. And you are all in one body together. That's what he's getting at in Romans. Because you have one justification and one Savior, you are one people. And these old divisions have no part to play in our life anymore. And so Paul wants to amplify for them the glory of the gospel, their need for the gospel. So in Romans chapter 1, if you look over here, he talks about that God promised this message about his, or this message is about the promised son, who's the son of God, who's the son of David, and he brings grace and peace. Paul always starts his letters with those two words, grace and peace. Let's say it together. Grace and peace. Grace, charis. That's the way Romans said hi to each other. Charis. Buenos dias. Good morning. Hey. My favorite greeting happened to me in Ireland when I, when I would visit over there. I had good friends over there, and I was walking through the little village of Ross Cray, and a person walking up to me said, David Cassidy, is that yourself? <laughs> and I, know, I just thought that was the most unusual greeting I'd ever heard in my life. His death yourself. That was the common Irish greeting there in the Republic in Ross Cray. I didn't, I, I, and I was like, well, it was when I left. Um, it turns out the, 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 the right response to that is, tis meself. Tis me. So if you're ever in Ireland, now you know. But the common Roman greeting was charis. What's the common Hebrew greeting? Shalom. Charis and 
shalom, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the very greeting of Paul is the encapsulation of the whole gospel that God's grace gives us peace with him through Jesus Christ and God's grace establishes peace between us as one people. Paul couldn't say hello without preaching the gospel and pastoring and shepherding these people. And so he says the gospel is the power of God, Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, because it started in Israel, and also to the, to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then what he does, starting in verse 18 and going all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, as he shows the need of humanity for this good news of the gospel. In chapter 1, verse 18, he says, the wrath of God is revealed. Now, in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he says, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. In chapter 1, verses 8, and he'll come back to that, but in chapter 1, 18, he goes, I'm going to get back to that. But you need to know the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all manner of unrighteousness and wickedness. And he begins to go through this catalog of sinfulness. And all of these things are the common practices of the Gentile world. And all of the Jews who were listening to that would have been going, oh, yeah, 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 that's right, that's right, those wicked, nasty Gentiles, they're really creepy. But then in Romans chapter 2, Paul says, Therefore you are without excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, For that you judge another, you condemn yourself, or you practice the same things. In other words, you have these very same things going on in your heart. And so he begins in chapter 2, going all the way down through the end of that chapter to show Jewish unbelief and sinfulness. So it's not just the Gentile world that's sinful, but the Jewish world is sinful too. And so in chapter 3, beginning over here in... uh, 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 and he, he, he says the Jews have certain advantages, no, no question about that. But, but, he says, none of those advantages make you better than the Gentiles. Verse 9 of chapter 3. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And then he has a long list of quotations from the Old Testament. There is none righteous, no, not even one, and so on. Verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed, that the whole world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So Paul in chapter 1 Verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, is showing that the whole world is in sin, whether Jew and Gentile. And then in chapter 3, verse 21, he begins to unpack through chapter 8, verse 39, the grace of God. Well, if the whole world, both Jew and Gentile, is under sin, then who's the good news for? Everyone, both Jew and Gentile. And this good news is centered in the work of Jesus Verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift. Not something you earn, not something you deserve, not something you have by birth, 
not something you have by ethnicity or religious obligation, justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. Now you remember we spent several weeks just on those verses right there. This is the holy of holies in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 28. And it is there that the blood of Jesus flowing from his head and his hands and his feet and his side down under the dirt of Calvary is noted as the sacrifice, the propitiation, which satisfies the justice of God, turns away the wrath of God, and reconciles us to the Father so that we are his forever. That brings us into union with Christ. In chapter 4, he talks about how this all is received by faith. In Romans chapter 5, he talks about how we were once in Adam, but now we are in a new humanity. We are now in Christ. In Romans chapter 6, Paul gets into the guts of that union. He says, He says in verse 3 of Romans chapter 6, Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So Paul says we have been united to Jesus. Now, this is the language Paul always uses to describe this. In Christ, through Christ, by Christ, with Christ. Let me give you an example of this. If anyone is in Christ, see if you can finish it. He is a new creation or a new creature. Most people know that. See, if anyone is in Christ, that in language is about being in union with. You are united to Christ. Jesus is not somebody who simply stands afar off from you, but Jesus is joined to you through the agency of the Holy Spirit, body and soul. You belong to him. You are bought by his blood. You are forgiven by his sacrifice, and his spirit unites you to him. You are one with him. You are united to him. In Romans chapter 7, Paul gets into the fact that even though we are right now united with Christ, we still, however, find ourselves every day struggling with the ongoing pollution of our past rebellion. We find ourselves still struggling with evil and sin within us. And so it's easy for us to wonder, are we really believers? Or perhaps... Even if we are, maybe Jesus, maybe Jesus is not pleased with us. Maybe he will cast us aside. But Paul comes to the end of that in Romans chapter 7. He says, you're married to Jesus. You've died and you've been raised and now you're, you're free from the, the, the penalty of the law and you've been joined to Jesus. He's, he's the bridegroom and you're the bride. You're married to him. And this bridegroom is going to be faithful to you. This bridegroom is never going to throw you out. He gets to the end of Romans chapter 7. He says, he says this as, as Romans 8 unfolds. There is therefore, 
because you're united to Christ and he's the faithful husband who will never cast you out, because he has shed his blood, because your relationship with God is not based on what you have done, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. It's based exclusively and entirely on what he has done. There is therefore now no condemnation, no matter what is going on inside of you, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, united to Christ. And then he says, this is why you're sons and daughters. God has put the spirit of adoption in your heart. You're the children of God. You're adopted sons and daughters. And that spirit down in you says to God the very words that Jesus said, Abba, Father, you are in relationship. You're the bride of Christ. You're the sons and daughters of the living God. And then he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, what? Who could be against us? Can anything separate us? from God. What about death? No. Life? No. Demons? Principalities? Powers? Never. Not happening. There is nothing that will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's where we left it in Romans chapter 8. So that gets you right up to Romans 9. So are you ready? Okay, so in Romans chapter 9, what happens is this. He has to go back and pick up this issue of the Jews. Because there aren't as many who believe as you'd expect. I mean, Paul believes, and he's one. And the Messiah, Jesus himself, of course, is Jewish. And all the first apostles were Jewish. But you would think that if the promises to Abraham and Isaiah had all been fulfilled, all the prophecies of David came to pass, you'd think that vast, vast numbers of Jewish people would go, it's the Messiah. The vast majority of them would believe. But in fact, it wasn't the vast majority. In fact, it was what Paul will later call a remnant. While James says that in Jerusalem, the church had tens of thousands of people in it, and that's true, it was still only a remnant of the population. So Paul, writing to Jewish and Gentile believers, the majority of whom would have been Gentile and only a small minority would have been Jewish, in a city, the world's first megacity, a city of a million people, the city that was the capital of this vast empire, he writes to them and he says, I need you to understand why things have worked out the way they have, why the plan of God is as it is. So, In Romans 9 through 11, Paul will unpack the plan of God. And he will deal with objections that people have about God having a plan. And God bringing that plan to pass. And he'll deal with the question of what is God doing and why is he doing it that way? What is happening with the Jewish people? And why have so few believed? What is that about? Does that undermine, does that not undermine God's redemptive plan? Doesn't that undermine God's credibility? And Paul will deal with those objections. And then when he comes to the end of it, Romans uh, chapter 11, at the very, very end, at the end of all of his argument on the plan of God, all of the stuff that he says, he will simply break into worship. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? 
that he would become his counselor, who was first given to him that it might be paid back to him again, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. So again, the end of all the theology is glory, doxa, doxology. That's where that word comes from, gloriology. That's what the word doxology means, doxa, doxology, glory, glory to God. When Paul gets done unpacking this this plan of God, which goes back to before time began, and as he unpacks it here, goes to the end of history. When he, he's going to set before them, this is what God did before time even began. And this is how it's going to work out at the end of history. He's going to put all of that before them. And he's going to say, God is amazing. Glory to God. And then he's going to flow out of that moment of worship to say to them, now here's how we're going to live in the light of that unfolding plan and the fact that everything exists through God. Everything came from Him. It exists through Him. It's going back to Him. So given that that's the case, here's how we're going to live. And in Romans chapter 12, what he does through chapter 15 is show them how God's will is worked out in their lives. And then in chapter 16, 1 to 27, he has some closing greetings for the people. All these people 26 different individuals with whom he is in friendship and relationship. And we'll get to why that section of Scripture, that's just a kind of greeting, is so important for our time together. So what can we say about this? Well, looking there in your study guide, we see the source of the gospel. It is from God. It is the gospel of God. We see the substance of the gospel. It is the gospel of God concerning his Son, Jesus Christ. We see the scope of the gospel. The gospel is for both the Jews and the Gentiles. It is for all nations. And we see the strength of the gospel, that it is God's saving power. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul said. It is the power of God unto salvation. So this is summarized for us beautifully in Romans chapter 10. Let's look over there. Romans 10, this is right in the middle of this big theological section that Paul has. And I just want you to look with me at the 13 verses, first 13 verses of Romans 10. Because what Paul does is he brings together everything he's been saying in 1 through 8, and he drops it right here into the middle of chapter 10. Now, the reason that's important is because that unites chapters 9 through 11 with everything he's been saying. There are some later academics who theorized that Romans 9 through 11 is an addendum. It was written later, kind of dropped into the middle. Because, they argue, you can go from chapter 8 at the very end. What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing nothing can separate us from the love of God. You can go from that right to chapter 12. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. In other words, you can skip 9 through 11. By the way, a lot of preachers do because they're scary. All right, but you don't get off the hook that easy, okay, and neither do I. But you can, you can just take it out and set it over here and just go from 8 to 12. But 10 really tells us that 9 through 11 are integrally related to 1 through 8. Because everything that he says in 1 through 8 is summarized right here in 10. Let's look at it. 
My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, that is the Jews, is their salvation. I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. Now that's hearkening back. You'll remember to an argument Paul made that said, if you want to live by the law, you can't pick and choose which commandments you want to live by. How many you got to live by? All of them. And the problem is if you break one of them, how many have you broken? All of them. So he says, they thought that by trying to do the law, they could establish their own righteousness. But Moses said, if you're going to live by the law, you've got to do it all. But the righteousness that's based on faith rather than performance speaks this. And he quotes from the law. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, because he's already come down, or who will descend into the abyss, That is to bring Christ up from the dead because he has been raised from the dead. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. What word? The word of faith, which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So do the Jews have a different Savior than the Gentiles? No. Do the Gentiles have a different Savior than the Jews? No, one Savior, one Lord, he's Lord of all. And does he differentiate? Does he discriminate in terms of the bestowal of his riches? No, he bestows the riches of his grace on all who will call upon him, whether Jew or Gentile, so that righteousness is not based on anything you or I have done, but is a gift that God richly, freely bestows upon us, upon all who believe. That's what God does doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or Gentile. So this connects this section of Romans 9 through 11 with everything that's gone on. What is going on here in this section? Well, just an overview. First of all, we have the mystery of Israel's unbelief. Let's look at Romans 9. Romans 9, verse 1. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, and so on. He goes on a little bit further and he says in verse 6, it's not as though the word of God has failed. That's the question. Has, because of Israel's unbelief, has God's promise failed? And Paul says no. And he says because they're not all Israel who are descended from Israel. But there is a mystery of Israel's unbelief, which Paul has to unpack. Then there is the majesty of the gospel, which is God's grace and Israel's obstinance. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. 
Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is their salvation. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. In other words, this gift. Rather than receiving the gift, they rejected the gift in favor of the presentation of their own performance. So there is the mystery of Israel's unbelief, and there's the majesty of the gospel, this free gift that is given, and yet Israel's obstinance in Romans chapter 10. That is there. And then there is the marvel of God's providence in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Look at there. Verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people Has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. So what's going on with the Jews? And each one of these chapters begins with a statement from Paul about his own self-reflection, his own heart in the matter. I could wish myself accursed, he says in Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 10, he says, my desire and my prayer to God is for their salvation. Romans chapter 11, God hasn't rejected his people, has he? I say no. So each one of these three sections begin with Paul's personal reflection on somehow God's plan is being worked out among his own people. And what does that look like? What what does that shape? And the rest of Romans chapter 11 shows how God's providence has been at work. And then in chapter 12 through 16, and we won't take time to get into that today, but that's what we're going to cover in the second semester, Romans 12 through 16, about how God gives us instructions for how to live as gospel people. How do we live out the implications of the gospel? So as you look in your study guide and you come over here to the the end of of, um, page 8, you can, you can see again uh, just a brief introduction to Romans 12 through 16. You can check that out and look that at your own at your own leisure. But I want us to really get locked down on Roman numeral 1, letters A, B, and C, the message of Romans 9 through 11, the gospel and the plan of God, the justification of God. If in many ways the first part of Romans dealt with the justification of sinners... Romans 9 through 11 will be dealing with the justification of God. Now, the old word that's used for that is theodicy, theodicy, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. Those of you taking notes, both of you, theodicy. It means to show God is just. You see, the question being asked is, has God's word failed? Is God unjust? What's going on here? How, Paul, do you explain the mystery of God's providence? And these chapters tackle those really difficult questions. And they may not, Paul may not, and I'm just going to warn you about this in advance, Paul may not answer your questions to your satisfaction. And my job, to also give you forewarned, forearmed, my job is to make clear what Paul's argument is. And so if you get mad at me, then you're mad at the wrong guy. 
I don't, I like you and it's important to me in my personal psychology and journey to be liked by you. Right? I, I, I like being liked. And so I think that's why preachers skip 9 through 11 because I think they think it'll make people mad at them. I don't want you to be mad at me. I want us to all have fun together. But now if you want to be mad at Paul, I'm all in. But my job is to make clear what he said. And it won't always just sit well. It won't sit easy. You'll go, I don't know if I like that. And if you don't say that, then I haven't done my job. So I would encourage you to look through Romans 9 through 11, read it through. It won't take you long. A couple of times this week, and then next week we'll start right in. In Romans chapter 9, the first 13, 14 verses or so. Amen? All right. I guess we got a little time for questions, or maybe not. Okay. Not much, right? No? Okay, questions. Yeah. So there were many people. So the question is, why was it hard for them to grasp Jesus as the Messiah? No, I think there was as many different reasons as there were people. Okay, so let's remember that he was a very popular figure for a long time. All right, for a period there in his public ministry, he was followed by thousands. Okay, in the end, he had 120 people. Right, that's all that were there on the day of Pentecost. So the next time you see a church of 120, don't think the pastor's a failure. Okay. So that's what Jesus had. But there were thousands of people following him. In the end, he did not fit the model that most of them had in their heads about the way a Messiah is supposed to look. They expected a political deliverer to free them from Roman oppression and end their slavery to the Gentiles. He didn't fit that. Secondly, he not only didn't overthrow the Romans, the Romans killed him on a cross. And cursed is he that hangs on a tree. In the interaction between early Jewish thinkers and early Christian thinkers, for instance, um, Pliny and others would say that this is a particularly objectionable fact to them. How can somebody actually be presented legitimately as the Jewish Messiah who, has ob- who is obviously under the curse of God? You can't be the anointed and the cursed at the same time. That doesn't make any sense. And so the fact of the crucifixion was something which was almost impossible for them to get past. Okay, so that's the second thing. Uh, The third thing is that there were competing multiple messiahs. There were many people claiming to be messiah in that time, and it was very common for the Romans to put down revolts and uprisings which came through those people. So Jesus was just one of many who would have been making that claim. And then fourthly, the claim that Jesus was raised from the dead was, for many of them, utterly and completely preposterous. Right? The very notion of resurrection for the de- from the dead, physical bodily resurrection, not continuing existence after death, but bodily resurrection from the dead, was something in the Gentile world which world was viewed as completely preposterous, and, but in the Jewish world itself was an issue of division. Pharisees did believe in a future general resurrection of the body. The Sadducees did not. But all of them believed, those who did believe in a physical bodily resurrection from the dead, believed that would happen at the end of the world, at the end of history. And the end of history was not here yet. 
So how could we say that the resurrection has occurred when history is still going on? So there are a number of factors, and I'm just mentioning a few very, very on-the-surface ones, which anybody who's a faithful Jew at that time would have been going, this doesn't make any sense. Okay, so Paul would say the the cross in particular was a scandal. It was a stumbling block to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Greeks, foolishness. So he's very clear that this is a deep, deep and profound problem, and he has to get into that. And in Romans 9, 10, and 11, he will get into why this occurred and why it's so vital to the bigger plan. But that's exactly the kind of question that a person should be asking about the first century. That's what they were asking. Well, it wasn't so much that. But remember, Jesus did not teach, you know, in, per se against the law. He didn't. He said, "I didn't come to overthrow the law; I came to fulfill it." So the problem wasn't the law per se. They had, as Paul notes in Romans 10, a misguided notion about the performance of the law being the establishment of righteousness. So you're established as righteous. The other thing that was a great stumbling block to the to many of them was this issue of how the Gentiles related. So the idea that they were now one people with the Gentiles was unthinkable. Uh, there were Christians who believed that, who did believe in Jesus, but who believed that for Gentiles to be Christians meant that they became faithful Jews and demanded circumcision and obedience to Jewish rites and sacrifices and so on. Um, they, those people too were a great were great enemies of Paul. So they were they would say, "Yeah, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah," but that means that you are, if you believe Jesus is the Messiah, you become a faithful law keeping Jew. That's what happens, right? So again, we live in a, we live, we have a difficult time looking back in the first century because we live so far away from it, and and we see two different religions. That's not the way it was in those first fifty years. First fifty years, there's only there's there, Judaism had various elements within it, and Christianity was like the Essenes and of the Qumran community, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and others, the Zealots were a sect. Paul calls it, it, Paul says, am I a member of the sect called the Nazarenes? Yes, I am. That's part of his defense in, uh, in Acts. That was just a part of Judaism. But these other parts of Judaism looked at it as a kind of cancerous growth, and they wanted it out. Right? So that eventually led to a parting of the ways after the demolition and destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Romans. After that, it really did go separate. But until that time, it was really something within Judaism But they looked at the Christians not only saying we worship Jesus as God, how can you worship man as a God? And how can you say that the Messiah has been crucified? And then how can you have table fellowship with Gentiles? Come on. You people have lost your minds. This is totally false. You can completely understand why somebody raised in that situation, especially in Judea, living under Roman oppression, and then being told, no, the Romans are your brothers and sisters, would go, I don't think so. They killed my grandfather. No, I don't think so. You, you see, very, very challenging. Yeah. Others? Other questions? <laughs> 